When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So if you're a fan of podcasts, my next guest likely needs no introduction. His name is Tim Ferriss, and he's the author of several New York Times bestselling books and the host of the popular podcast, The Tim Ferriss Show. Tim's out with a new book called Tools of Titans, which he distills the hours of interviews he's conducted with high-performing guests on his podcast to give readers the best tactics and strategies on how to live a successful and flourishing life. Today on the show, Tim and I discuss self-improvement advice and the survivorship bias, the common habits of high performers, and how to ask better questions so you can learn things more quickly. Tim also discusses his struggle with depression and what's worked for him in keeping the black dog at bay. This podcast is crammed with actionable advice, uh, so you'll want to take notes. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash ferris, that's F-E-R-R-I-S-S. Tim Ferriss, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. All right, so you got a new book out, Tools of Titans, The Tactics, Routines, and Habits of Billionaires, Icons, and World-Class Performers. Basically, what you've done is you distilled hours of interviews you've done on your podcast, The Tim Ferriss Show, to get the best tactics to help people live a flourishing life. And I love these sorts of books, like what successful people do, the routines of successful people. But you know, one of the criticisms that's levied at these sorts of books and articles and things like that is that they can fall prey to the survivorship bias, right? Mm-hmm. So for those who aren't familiar, the survivorship bias is if you just look at successful people and look at what they did, um, you can get the assumption that, well, if you do these things too, you too will also be successful, but you ignore the people who did the exact same things, but failed, right? Because you don't see the losers. Mm-hmm. How do you respond to a criticism like that? You know, does, does that apply to the tools of Titans? Or not? Well, I think that survivorship bias, it's survivorship bias is something I'm very acutely familiar with because of investing. If you open Barron's and you look at the mutual funds that advertise, that is a common criticism, right? That they they just happen to be the monkey that flipped heads up a hundred times in a row. But if you have enough monkeys, you're gonna end up with one of those. And how do you know? Uh that that monkey will go on to write how-to books about how to flip coins, but it just was uh a, a probability that, of course, given the sample size, you'd end up with someone like that. So I'm very familiar with conf- how people can confuse correlation with causation. In this case, I think there are a few differences. The first is that from the hundreds of hours and about 10,000 pages of transcripts, that is probably 50 or 60% of Tools of Titans, the distilled 
tactics and routines and so on. The important portion is that I don't view myself as an interviewer. The rest is all new stuff, uh, brand new tips from past guests and also new folks like Jack Dorsey and so on. Uh, there, so there are, there are, I think, a few elements that, that make it different. The first is that I don't view myself as an interviewer. I view myself as an experimentalist. So I've tried everything in the book and I have replicated results to one extent or another. And I've also then been able to look at how these habits have been used by my friends, colleagues, and fans over the last several years. So I've been able to vet the, let's just call it the top 1% of everything that has been on the Tim Ferriss show to date. You know, And the second piece of it is that many of these people, and, and I would be the first to say, I think that it's not any one trick or hack, which is a word I try not to use these days, but it, there's no one trick that's going to turn you into Jack Dorsey. But the fact remains that once you're lucky, twice you're good, three times something really interesting is going on. Jack is someone who has a history of multiple home runs. Mark Andreessen, same story. Uh, These are people who, if they're lucky, they are some of the luckiest people on the planet. But I have to think there is actually an element of skill involved. And they have blueprints and recipes of their own. And in the case of what's been included in the book, these are things that I've been able to duplicate to some extent. Uh, So I'd say that's a big difference is I'm not looking at it from the sidelines. Uh, I'm, I'm really in a, an experiential learner and only want to give people stuff that they can apply. Right. So you've vetted everything you, you experimented. That's one of the ways you can figure out if you can replicate it. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I, but I, I also would just underscore the, the fact that it's, it's a matter of not only finding habits and routines and so on that appear to work for someone, but looking at, for instance, the sleep cycles and so on of these different models and finding someone who is compatible with your own personality and life. It's very easy to say, well, hey, you should wake up at 4.30 in the morning and do what A, B, C, D people do. Uh, but that may not, just because it works for one person, person just because it works for even many people does not mean it will necessarily work for you. So, so there, there is some trial and error involved, but the good news is it doesn't take a whole hell of a long time. Right. So we're not all jockos, right? You we're not all jockos, but for instance, uh, there are certain things that you can test very quickly. And then I'll actually pull out one of, one of your pieces of work when I was trying to learn how to whistle with my fingers to call my dog Molly <laughs> back in the day, I watched your video over and over and over again. And uh, as you know, it sucks learning to do it in the very beginning. I mean, you look like an idiot having some type of meltdown uh, in the beginning, but over time, it takes just a few days and then you'll have your first success. So the feedback loop is pretty fast as it is with a lot of this stuff. Right. So, you know, as you interviewed people and as you went through the transcripts and you know, writing the book, did you find that there were common habits or tactics or routines of these people you interviewed? There were a lot of them. Uh, sorry for the police cars. I'm in New York City. It sounds like I'm in Beirut, but hopefully you're not picking up too much of that. Uh, the common habits and routines are many. There were a lot of patterns that I spot I spotted after the fact, uh, but here are a few. So one would be that uh, at least 80% of the people I interviewed, and this could be another type of bias, selection bias, right? So not survivorship, but this could be selection bias, meaning that I'm 
inviting people onto my show who are more prone to, in this case, have some type of meditation or mindfulness practice. But more than 80, 80% have it or have had it. If you look at, say, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he only did it for a year, but he did transcendental meditation. And then he explains that it's had persistent effects for decades afterwards, which is a very interesting idea. And that was transcendental meditation. But then you have Sam Harris, who does primarily, let's call it Vipassana meditation with, with some variation. And then you have other folks like Maria Popova of Brain Pickings, who has listened to the same the same guided meditation, which is free audio from Tara Brock, B-R-A-C-H. It's the summer 2010 smile meditation. It's about 25 minutes long. And she's listened to the same audio every morning for the last several years and credits Tara with changing her life. So there is, there is the consistency of a mindfulness or meditation practice, but it can take many forms. It could be what I just described, or it could be, say, listening to a song or a, a given album on repeat, which a surprising number of these folks do when they need to focus or code, for instance, or write or fill in the blank. Uh, climb some of the toughest cliff faces in the world. In the case of Alex Honnold, he listens to the Last of the Mohican soundtrack on repeat. You know, it's a good one. Um, so that that's one. Another is that they a very very high percentage take uh, and take sleep seriously and engineer sleep as a very, very, very high priority. So for instance, Rick Rubin, legendary music producer, you go down the line, you know, Johnny Cash, Linkin Park, Eminem, Jay-Z, Lady Gaga, uh, Kanye, Jay-Z, it's everybody. It's just insane. His roster of, uh, of artists. And he uses something called the Chili Pad. So the Chili Pad is a device that sits to the side of your bed and it circulates water through a very thin sheet that you put under your own sheet and you find your ideal sleep temperature between 55 degrees and I want to say 80 degrees. And this has been a life changer and game changer in a lot of ways for me and for other people. Uh, so Kelly Starrett, who's a superstar CrossFit uh, coach and trainer, among other things, also credits the chili pad. And I had never heard of it before bumping into these two guys. And so you're talking to People who are in the top 1% of what they do, completely different worlds, yet they're both using this obscure device. And those are the things that I get really excited about. Or if there's a book recommendation or a documentary recommendation that is really obscure, but nonetheless pops up five or 10 or 15 times, like Poor Charlie's Almanac as a book recommendation. You know, I ask people in all of my interviews, what book have you gifted most to other people? Which is actually, in my, I think, in many respects, a better question than what are your favorite books? which has a primacy and recency bias. People tend to think of what they read recently or something they read long, long time ago. And uh, the Poor Charlie's Almanac by Charlie Munger popped up all the time, uh, which is not what you would call a, a huge perennial bestseller or, or mainstream book at all. So th those are a few of the things that pop up. Uh, but there are... There are many, many others. Um, I mean, the, the, the most consistent point, though, I would say, is that they all have routines. And the, the specific routine is not as important as having a routine. You have routines to make a lot of your day autopilot so that you can preserve your decision-making hit points, so to speak, and, and avoid decision fatigue so that you can conserve yourself for the stuff that actually matters. Uh, and those are usually meaning the 
unique strengths that you bring to the table? Because all of these people, and this is a point, one of the points I want to make with the book, because I don't just ask them about their ideal days. I ask them about their darkest periods and toughest times and what they did as coping mechanisms. All of these people, uh, and maybe with the exception of a few mutants, but almost every single one of them is a, a flawed creature uh, with imperfections, walking around with a lot of insecurities, just like everybody else, just like all of us. And that is really, really reassuring to see that they're, they've just been able to capitalize on and maximize one or two strengths and sort of build routines and lives around maximizing those. Right. And with the routines, did you find that they were very mindful about how they created their routines or was it more of an organic process and how they developed those routines? Super organic. A lot of it is accidental and uh, it mimics evolution in a lot of respects. I mean, evolution is far from perfect. It's not just a model that keeps on improving. Right? You have all these weird mutations and accidents. Some of them work out, some of them don't. And that's true with many of these routines. I'll give you an example. Mike Berbiglia, who's one of the most successful comedians on the planet, he figured out a Jedi mind trick for himself uh, when he was putting off writing his last screenplay, which ended up becoming a hit movie. But he kept on procrastinating. He'd put it off. He'd he'd wash his, wash his car, do things in between, whatever it might be, to postpone writing. But he didn't do that, he noticed, with any meetings. When he had to, let's say, have a lunch meeting with someone or a conference call, he was always early. And to as an experiment, he took a post-it note and he put it by his bedside and it said, Mike, three exclamation points, you have a meeting with yourself at 7 a.m. at whatever the cafe was <laughs> to work on your screenplay. And for whatever weird reason, for whatever quirk of, of human psychology, it actually worked for him. So that is one of the, you could call it a crutch, but one of the tricks that he used to hold himself accountable and get his screenplay written. I love that. But yeah. that's, uh, and, and also you'll find a lot of these folks, there are some who are just Terminators like Jocko, right? <laughs> Jocko Willink, <laughs> yeah. uh, retired Navy SEAL commander, an extremely impressive guy in every possible respect. But then you find the vast majority are very, very, very highly disciplined in a handful of areas. And then they're, I'm not going to say sloppy, but just very human in others. You know, Sam Harris, PhD in neuroscience, incredible thinker, one of the smartest humans I've ever met. I asked him about his morning routines. And unlike, say, Jocko, has a very codified morning routine involving working out and waking up early and so on and so forth. Sam said, I'd love to give you this picture of a well-oiled machine, but he's, it's really stumbling stumbling out of the bedroom in search of caffeine and I may or may not have checked my email on my phone by the time I, I pressed the but, the proper button you know and uh, which I also find very reassuring so I would say that there are some people who are very systematic and they're the product of training so their routine is a reflection of that whether it's Jocko or certain athletes let's say some super athletes Right. I think that's actually really useful to know because I think a lot, of, a lot of the frustration that comes with trying to be more productive or trying to get stuff done is like you think you have to come down with this perfect system, right? And design it top down. And then it never works out and you get frustrated and you just like give up on the whole thing. Yep. Um, but I like the idea of just trying to f figure it out organically, work with your quirks instead of working against them. Yeah, 100%. And uh, that's expressed different ways by different folks. I mean, you have Embrace Your Funk, which is Josh Waitzkin, chess prodigy, but he's not really a prodigy because he can take his learning framework and apply it to so many things. 
He's a world champion in Tai Chi push hands, first black belt under the, arguably the best grappler of all time, Marcelo Garcia, and so on and so forth. So embrace your funk. Then you have Chris Saka, billionaire investor, uh, sort of, uh, <laughs> encouraging you to be your weird self. And uh, then you have someone like Dan Carlin, who is the host of my favorite podcast of all time, which is Hardcore History. And he says, copyright your faults. And in radio, he was heavily criticized and and but for his voice and how he would peak. He was, he was known as the guy who would talk real low and then scream and throw it into the red. And he was coached by his supervisors to change that. And later it became a really, really valuable trademark uh, style of his. So copyright your faults is another one that, that, uh, that Dan Carlin says. And it's really, I, th- I think that if you were to look at everything in Tools of Titans, you have different layers of abstraction and you use them all. So you have, say at the top, value systems or philosophies or beliefs, right? So you'd have, say, Jamie Foxx, you know, what's on the other side of fear? Nothing. This is this phrase that he uses to instill confidence in his kids. And it's the belief that past fear, generally there are little or no consequences. In other words, if you, if you really put your fear under a magnifying glass and run through some exercises, there's nothing there. There's no there there. And you can de-risk a situation completely because there isn't any real risk. Um, then you have the, and there, there are many such examples of just core beliefs that then enable the tactics right? So if, if, if say <clears throat> everything you want is right outside of your sphere of comfort, let's just say that's one of your beliefs at the high level of abstraction. Then you go one layer down and you have Chris Saka, who I just mentioned before, when he was working at Google as a new hire, he would just walk into meetings he was uninvited to before they started or as they were starting with anyone and everyone, including the Wonder Twins, Sergey and Larry, the founders of Google, he would just walk in and sit down and they, they would ask eventually, like, uh, why are you here? And he'd say, oh, I didn't realize I, I couldn't attend. I figured I would just take notes for you guys. <laughs> and <laughs> the company was of a size at the time. It wasn't a tiny startup, but they, they allowed him to do it. And then once he did it five, six, seven times, he became a standard presence at these super high-level meetings, which allowed him to not only get promoted extremely quickly, but his learning curve was just 100x any of his coworkers at the same level. Uh, so that would be then a tactic, right? And uh, when you combine all of those, and you don't have to use all from one person, you end up with a really cool recipe that you can test and test pretty quickly. Right. I love that. Well, so in, my favorite nuggets in the book um, weren't really the very specific tactics that people did, which those were cool. I love reading those type of things, but the things I got the most out of the book were like the more abstract things you were talking about, mm-hmm. the big picture advice that you've been able to extract from your guests, um, particularly about how to learn how to learn. Because it seems like a, most of your guests you've had on, they've, they've thought a lot about how to learn and how to learn better. Um, so for example, several guests, several guests talked about asking good questions. I think mm-hmm. Tony Robbins said the quality of your, of your life is the quality of your questions. Um, I, I like this idea cause I think it connects with the, f- uh, four hour chef about this meta learning thing. For sure. You've seemed to develop a knack for asking questions that allow you to get to the most salient points in something, whether it's learning how to do three gun shooting, um, play poker, or even more abstract things like how to run a business, et cetera. 
So what sorts of questions should someone be asking if they want to learn something quickly? Um, I mean, are there questions you can ask that apply across domains or does it depend on the domain? Oh, there are definitely questions you can ask that uh, apply across domains. Uh, so th- there are, I would say, a few that come to mind. Uh, and the this was the first book of all of my books that I actually enjoyed writing. And the reason for that is, is that the interviews themselves are my favorite part of the book writing process without the writing. <laughs> Interviewing experts and trying to tease out the concrete details of how you can achieve in, say, three months, what might normally take three years or three decades. And the the questions include some of the following. I would uh, find an expert, which is not very hard to do. And in sports, for instance, I would look probably for a silver medalist in the last two Olympics in your given sport and your city name, just a simple Google search. And then I would ask a number of questions like, who shouldn't be good at your sport? Who is good at your sport? And it doesn't have to be at the Olympic level, but who who is in the top, say, 10% of competitors, professional or amateur, who are not built for it? So that might mean in a world of ultra running, they're not built like a six foot five spider. They are short and they weigh 220 pounds. That person by attributes shouldn't be good at that sport, which means they compensate probably with an unusual or unorthodox form of training. That is how you separate the nature versus nurture uh, elite performers. You want to t- you want to separate that as delineate that as quickly as possible. The next would be if they're a coach, have you been able to replicate your results? And who who are the what separates the fast responders from the slow or non responders? And this is also fishing to determine how much of what they've achieved can be attributed to technique versus some God-given talent that you won't be able to model. Then a lot of hypothetical questions come into play. And these these hypothetical questions are very often absurd. And they're absurd for a reason. Uh, And that is that the the most powerful questions are very often those that seem impossible to answer. And it's not, what is the sound of one hand clapping? It's not a koan, but you might use something like Peter Thiel's, why can't you achieve your 10-year plans in the next six months, right? Uh, You can't answer a question like that using your normal framework and set of assumptions. So I would ask, say, an athlete, or it it doesn't really matter, angel investor, could be anyone, but let's just use sports for the sake of simplicity. If you had to train me for a state-level or national-level competition in eight weeks, and you could say, I know it's impossible, but if, if you had a gun to your head or $10 million on the line to win, you had eight weeks to train me, what would you do? And uh, this is to try to figure out the 80-20, uh, the, the 20% of the training that will give you 80% or more of the outcome that you want. In this case, sort of competitive repertoire technique or conditioning, right? Others would be, what are the most, what are the biggest wastes of time for novices? Where do novices typically misspend their time? What are the things they focus on they shouldn't focus on? And what are the things they neglect that they, sh- that they should focus on starting day one? Um, and these are questions that, that really 
transcend any specific area. You could use it for language learning. You could use it for business. You could use it for fitness. You could use it for diet. You could use it for just about anything. That's awesome. And I, I like, it's interesting. You, you said go for the second, the, the silver medalist. Is there a reason why? Is just because you couldn't get access to the gold medalist? Oh yeah. yeah. Let me explain that. Because the gold medalists will be higher in demand. They'll be harder to get a hold of and they will be um, more difficult to convince to help you. And silver medalists, very frequently, there are some exceptions, but they are athletes who are just as good as the person who won gold. Right, right, right. They just happen to have a bad day. <laughs> it's, I mean, any given Sunday with most of these sports in the Olympics at the highest levels. Uh, and again, I mean, there's some outliers, but silver medalists just makes it easier and cheaper to get advice, say, via Skype video, which I've done in the past with, say, people who took second place in world championships. And you can, you can certainly go after the big dogs, but don't be shy about pursuing the second best because they're very often as good as the person who took first place. And I've done that for learning to do surfing pop-ups, for instance, which I learned from a world-class competitor. I happened to be in Berlin at the time where it was pouring, pouring rain and he was in Southern California and we did it via Skype video. <laughs> he coached me through doing surf pop-ups on the living room floor of an Airbnb in Berlin, Germany. Uh, and it was, I think, 80 bucks for the hour. I mean, it's just an incredible bargain. I mean, I just cut at least three months of headache off of my uh, learning curve by doing that. So it's, uh, it's, it's just sitting out there for people to grab for, for a lot of these things. Have you ever had an instance where you, you've talked to someone who's a high performer, but they weren't able to really give you any good insights because they had the curse of knowledge. Like they couldn't really explain it to you because it just came nat. They just, they took for granted like these, these, uh, the very basics that you needed to, to get in order to get this skill all the time. Yeah, this is very common. So I will never just go after the top performers, meaning in, in certain areas, say in acting or in sports, where the best people tend or the most famous people tend to have started at an extremely young age. Uh, they are not always, they are frequently incapable of teaching novices or intermediates because everything they do is second nature at this point. They don't remember what it was like not to know. So that means I have two buckets of so-called experts that I'll go after. You have the people who are the best in the world, and then you have the people who have made the most progress in a short period of time, which is why, in addition to asking who's good at this, who shouldn't be, I will ask which of your students or which people are you aware of who have gone from zero to, say, national caliber in an, in an unbelievably short period of time or just come out of the blue. No one knew them and all of a sudden they're a national champion or a world champion. Who comes to mind? And I'll get that list. So at the very least, even if someone can't teach me what they know, they can tell me who the outliers are that I should study. And for swimming, let's say you might have a Michael Phelps uh, who's going to be impossible to get a hold of most likely. And then you might have someone like Shinji Takeuchi. So Shinji Takeuchi is not a competitive swimmer, but went from not being able to swim to having one of the most beautiful freestyle swim strokes on YouTube. And there was a point in time where the first most viewed swimming video on YouTube was Michael Phelps. The second was Shinji Takeuchi for total immersion method, which was just mind blowing. And Shinji 
went from zero to that in an exceptionally short period of time, something like six or nine months. So he is someone I would, I would reach out to absolutely. And, and, uh, that is often where the gems are and uh, you can exploit that in, in a million different ways. But if it's, if I'm looking at investing, if I'm looking at podcasting, I'm looking at uh, always separating out, separating out the experts I pursue into those two groups. So yes, if I'm operating in the world of podcasting, all right, maybe I want to talk to say Ira Glass. Good luck. <laughs> Probably not going to happen, right? Of this American life. Maybe I want to talk to Mark Barrett. At this point, also, probably not going to happen. Really busy guy, really in demand. But perhaps there is someone who just started, who through the grapevine, I figure out is getting a million or five million downloads a month. And they started three months prior with no pre-existing fan base. Okay, something interesting is going on. Even though they're not as big as Mark, they're certainly not as big as This American Life, their, their zero to 60 speed is faster than both of those examples. Uh, so I will really dig on that. I'll spend a lot of time investigating that person and, and asking them questions if they're willing to answer them. Yeah, that's great. Um, one of the questions that I love that's really stuck with me uh, was from an interview you did with Peter Diamandis. Is that how you say his last name? That's I, right, Diamandis. Yeah, Diamandis. Uh, he says you should always, if you're a businessman or you own a business, you should always be asking, how would someone disrupt me? Um, and I don't think this is, I think it's applicable even if you don't own a business. I mean, you can just figure out like, how would I lose my job? What would cause me to lose my job in my industry? Um, but that could be a, a hard question to answer, right? You know, Clayton Christensen, uh, the guy who wrote The Innovator's Dilemma, says that it's, it's hard for successful companies uh, to figure out what's going to disrupt them because they don't, they can't see it coming. So are there like questions that you can ask to help you answer that question? Like how would someone disrupt my business or disrupt me? Uh, there, there's certainly ways you can go about it. I think the, perhaps the best way to go about it, which is another pattern in this book, uh, if, if you were to talk to, say, uh, General Stan McChrystal, so retired four-star general, ran JSOC in uh, effectively all of special operations in Afghanistan and Iraq for a period of time, or you talk to Jocko, or you talk to Mark Andreessen in the world of investing, or you talk to, uh, as you pointed out, Peter Diamandis, <clears throat> there's a concept of red teaming. And red teaming is so named... Because it was an exercise that originated in the military, or at least I'm sure it exists in many militaries, but in the US, during the Cold War, you had the blue team, the US, and the red team, the, the Soviets. And the, the objective was to take, say, I'm just making these numbers up, but if you had a 50-person team in the Navy, you might take five of those people and designate them as red team. And the other 45 have focused on, say, defensive plans. The other five would focus on solely trying to determine how to defeat those plans or to penetrate uh, a secure perimeter or whatever it might be. And you can, you can do that with your friends. <laughs> you can ask for help. This is something I've had to learn <laughs> repeatedly over the years. Like You don't have to just sit in isolation and think yourself into a tizzy trying to logic your way <laughs> to miracles every day. You can actually just sit down and like bribe your friends with pizza and beer and say, hey guys, I'm trying to figure this out. Uh, and get ideas, gather ideas from, from friends, ideally people who are intelligent, but uh, that would be one way of absolving yourself of complete responsibility for figuring that out. 
and you could even couch it in a way that could become an opportunity. So let's say you're in a, in a company and you're wondering how you're trying to determine the most likely scenarios for you being fired, you being replaced, or your division being made obsolete, whatever it might be. In the process of trying to figure out how to take down the company that you work for as an exercise, as red teaming exercise, you might actually come up with a fantastic idea for, for a startup that ends up being hugely successful. This, this, is, this is actually a common genesis story in Silicon Valley. <laughs> Um, so I think, I think red teaming is, is an incredibly powerful concept and, uh, it's, it's part of what you could consider also, and this has come up a few times, a SWOT analysis, a strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats analysis. And this would fall in the weaknesses and, or threats category. That's awesome. I mean, have you red teamed yourself? Like, you know, how would someone disrupt Tim Ferriss Inc.? Uh, well, I've red teamed myself from a security standpoint. So that's a digital security and physical security standpoint. Just because I've, I've gotten to a point, and this is just a, a, a price you pay, with enough public exposure, let's safely assume that one out of every thousand people is just batshit crazy. <laughs> so you have an audience of a few million people. Well, you're going to have a small army of of batshit crazy folks who may or may not try to track you down. And um, they may or may not make death threats because they're completely unhinged. They may or may not think that you're their long lost lover or brother or fill in the blank and try to find you. So I've red teamed absolutely from a security standpoint, many aspects of my life. Uh, and uh, that, that has been extremely productive. <clears throat> you don't want to wait for other people to identify your weak spots. <laughs> then you're in a very reactive mode. You want to proactively red team, and that could be for home defense, could be for digital hygiene. It could be as simple as talking to a hacker like Sammy Kamkar, who created the fastest growing virus of all time, who also has a chapter in Tools of Titans on what you should do to defend against people like him. It's like starting point number one, put some tape or something over the camera on your laptop because it is child's play for people like Sammy to hijack that and record you. It is so easy. It is laughable. I have seen it. Uh, and on and on and on and on. But um, those are primarily the ways that I've red teamed. I've also uh, red teamed in the process of doing competitive analysis. Uh, looking at, for instance, when a book is launching. When I launched my first book, unlike Tools of Titans, which is coming out in the most po the the hardest possible time frame, it is the most competitive month of the year, meaning the holidays, uh, pre holidays, pre pre Christmas, etc. For the four-hour work week, I looked at historical book scan numbers and tried to identify soft spots where there were fewer competitive threats and the total, the absolute number of total copies required to say hit the New York Times was on average lower. And that happened to be April. Uh, so there are ways that you can look at how to disrupt others and then you can look at how others might disrupt you. For instance, this is a uh, role-playing version of red teaming, but you can do it yourself, which is Neil Strauss, eight-time New York Times bestselling author, has also interviewed every celebrity imaginable for Rolling Stone and the New York Times. When he edits his own books, and this is in his profile, he edits with three passes. The first time he writes it for himself. 
uh, or I should say, uh, he writes it first for himself and then he edits it for himself to be fun for himself, gratifying in whatever way he wants to be gratified. Then he writes it or edits it rather for his fans so that he answers his fans' questions, the follow-up questions or the doubts or the confusing points that his fans, his diehard followers, uh, will focus on. And then third, he edits for his haters. He tries to identify, if I hated Neil Strauss and wanted to take this down, wanted to find a contradiction, wanted to cherry-pick something so that I can make him look like an idiot, how would I do it? And he run, he walks through his own writing with red ink, and figures out how to defend against that preemptively. That is absolutely a form of red teaming. You're just doing it yourself. Right. It sounds like an attorney. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Definitely. Um, so you've interviewed a lot of... And By the way, side note. Oh, go ahead. Just for those people who uh, want to find or trying to improve their writing, which, by the way, along with asking questions, that's your thinking. <laughs> how you write and ask questions, that's how you think. So if you want to improve the clarity of your thinking, which applies and helps everything, of course. Yeah. If you don't have a professional editor to review your stuff or a professional writer or a very good writer, which many people will not, actually find a lawyer. Find a friend who went to law school because they have been trained to find A, amorphous or nebulous language, which reflects unclear thinking, unnecessary words, which can compromise the clarity of a message, and so on and so forth. They're actually very, very good at helping with proofreading. Yeah, I went to law school. I graduated from law school. And my legal writing class was probably the most useful class I took there because like, I had to learn how to do those things. Totally believe it. Yeah. And uh, you see that pop up a lot in uh, Tools of Titans. Like Chris Saka, a lot of people don't realize he has a law degree. <laughs> I mean, yeah. a great number of these folks have law degrees who don't use them because they are both good at writing and putting on paper clear thought and negotiating. And those skills right. also are a meta skill that apply to just about everything. Yeah. I think it's interesting. There's a lot of like internet writers who were once attorneys like Jonathan Fields, who used to be an SEC attorney, Gretchen Rubin mm -hmm. uh, for happiness project was, you know, she worked on the Supreme court. Um, yeah. It's, it's a pretty useful skill. Yeah. It doesn't surprise me at all. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. 
Fast-growing trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use fast-growing trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on fast-growing trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try fast-growing trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, so one of the first things I did, I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. So, I mean, you've interviewed a lot of, you know, well-known, high-performing folks. Um, who's the most pr- impressive but lesser-known guest you've had on the show? Oh, that's a toughie. I mean, because uh, lesser-known, of course, you have the Jamie Foxes and the Arnold Schwarzeneggers and stuff. Lesser-known, yeah, it's, that's all relative. But it's like, yeah, it's like if like your your mom wouldn't know who they are, right? Everyone knows Arnold Schwarzenegger. Everyone knows... Tony Robbins. I would say uh, the first person who comes to mind, God, there's so many because I deliberately, I'd say more than half of the guests I seek out are exactly that profile. But I would say two people come to mind right off the bat. Derek Sivers is one, uh, entrepreneur, but very understated, uh, lives a very austere 
austere, I wouldn't say austere, Spartan kind of monkish life, despite the fact that he sold the company for $24 million and gave it all to a charitable remainder trust, which helps support music education, among other things. Uh, philosopher, king of programming and entrepreneurship, just a fascinating, fascinating guy uh, who has a lot of rules for his life. And I've seen him in action. So he actually walks the talk. There are a lot of motivational type folks that I just can't stand because what they say on stage and what they do in their lives are, are completely incompatible. And Derek is not that. He is what you see is what you get. What you hear is what he does. And he has a lot of rules, uh, which are which are very easy to remember and very useful. For instance, uh, I asked him what advice he would give his younger self. And it's a rule he's still, a guideline he still follows, which is don't be a donkey. <laughs> so... What does that mean? Uh, don't be a donkey is a reminder to not to try to do multiple things at once. And it's a, it's a, an allusion to Buridan's ass, which is a fable of a donkey that's standing halfway between water and hay. And it looks left and right, left and right, left and right. Can't decide whether to eat or drink first and it dies <laughs> in the middle. And, uh, that was his answer because as a 30 something, Derek felt like he didn't want the world to tell him what to do. He didn't want to have to over-specialize and paint himself into a corner. Why can't I do these 10, t 10 things at once? I have a lot of horsepower, a lot of endurance. I can do it. And you end up traveling one millimeter in a million directions and making no real progress on anything. So he taught himself to do one thing at a time and you can get everything done. You just can't do it at the same time. You sequentially focus on one thing for say six to 12 months and then you move on to the next. And to remind himself of that is just don't don't be a donkey. <laughs> and uh, he also has a, a very simple framework for making decisions. Uh, in the beginning, it was say yes to everything. Before he was a musician, he went to Berkeley School of Music, ended up founding CD Baby much later. But in the beginning, he said yes, yes to every gig, say yes to everything in the beginning. And he ended up saying yes to an acoustic guitar gig at a pig show. I'm not making this up in like rural New England. <laughs> he went and he treated it like he was playing Madison Square Garden. And that piddly little pig show led to an entire career as a musician, basically. Later, once he had a little bit of success, it came down to hell yeah or no. Basically, if it's not a hell yeah with 100% excitement, oh my God, how could I not do that? Then it's a no. Because once you've had a little bit of success and it doesn't require very much in a digital age, you're, the amount of inbound noise uh, and the, um, the amount of kind of cool offers and invites that you will get in a month is more than you could say yes to in a year. Uh, and when you get to that point, what's going to kill you, what's going to make you fail, what's going to make you overwhelmed, what's going to make you flame out is, is not the bad opportunities. It's going to be a mountain of kind of cool, interesting stuff that you commit yourself to, which then doesn't leave you the bandwidth to pursue the one or two hell yeah opportunities that you create or come across maybe once a year. The other person who came to mind right off the bat was uh, a palliative care physician, which effectively means a hospice physician, someone who helps people die, named B.J. Miller. And B.J. Miller has helped about a 1,000 people die. He's a young guy. He is a triple amputee. He, during college, had lost his limbs in an electrocution accident. They were burned off, three of his limbs. And his take on the world is, is just very, very unique. Uh, and... 
he is, he, he really helped me to, to understand his approach to helping people pass to through the end of life to death. And it, what I liked about it in part is that it, it was not uh, compatible with a lot of the listicles you see, like the, the eight regrets of the dying or whatever right. these lists end up being, which are all the usual things you would expect. Like, oh, like having not spent another day at the office, like the usual cliched stuff. And you, you have to wonder when you read those things, are these people saying what they feel? Are they saying what they think they should want to say? Or is it something else? And BJ, <laughs> rather than, for instance, well, there are a few things that, that come to mind that, that I found very thought-provoking. One is when I asked him, what do you put on a billboard? And I asked all my guests this, what would you put on a gigantic billboard if you wanted to get a message out to millions of people? And he said, don't believe everything that you think. And I was like, ooh, that's a good one. And we could chew on that for an hour alone, just that one line. But other things were, for instance, how he helps people grapple with the big existential questions, the big, say, spiritual questions. And in short, the answer is he doesn't. Uh, he actually helps people to consider the beauty of pointlessness and why that may not be a bad thing. In fact, it could be a really profound beautiful thing. And he will have them look at, for instance, uh, art books of Mark Rothko paintings, or he would potentially have them do that to ponder something that is beautiful, but without any explicit meaning per se. Um, and to, and to lose the addiction or attachment to everything having to have meaning or some predestination. I thought that was, that was extremely curious and, and, and worth exploring. Or the fact that both he and a memory champion named Ed Cook, and they're separated by thousands of miles, do something that I ended up calling uh, star therapy, which is when, for instance, in BJ's case, he's feeling overwhelmed or anxious, uh, he will look up into the night sky at stars and just consider the fact that some of the light may have been emitted from those stars thousands of years before hitting his eye in that instant. Or that some of the stars he's seeing, so to speak, no longer exist. And pondering the enormity of the cosmos and how we're a blip on the screen, we are a, a blinking of a firefly, as Naval Ravikant would put it, in the grand scheme, it puts a lot of our now realized trivial issues, <laughs> the guy who cut us off in traffic, the idiot we got into an argument with at work or on the phone, whatever it might be, it makes all of that seem extremely ridiculous and laughable and is, is incredibly antidepressant in its effects. And so I tried this and it sounded really woo-woo and out there. And I started doing it every night, even during book deadline when I was writing this. Uh, and I attribute a lot of little things like that, which have some overarching philosophical connection to allowing me to actually be relaxed for the first time putting a book together, which has never been the case. Um, so Derek Sivers and BJ Miller are two who come to mind. 
That's great. So, I mean, you've, uh, you've tried all the tips and all the, the tactics and advice that you, you got from your guest. I mean, was there one piece that, you know, provided immediate ROI like, as soon as you implemented it, like you noticed a, a, an improvement in your life right away? Oh yeah. Yeah. There, there have been quite a few, but I'll, I'll focus on one. Uh, and that is, uh, intelligent fasting and entering a state of ketosis. Ketosis for people who don't know what it is, it is a state your body enters when you are starved effectively. So if you were stranded by a plane crash, lost in the woods, after a few days, your body would shift from using carbohydrates because you're not eating anything and you run out of stored carbohydrate, which is glycogen, to using your body fat. That's why you store body fat. And you, instead of using glucose, blood sugar, you end up using predominantly ketones. And the brain and heart end up working extremely well, uh, among other tissues, on ketones. So turns out that entering ketosis through dietary means or from taking supplemental ketones, which is a very new thing called exogenous ketones, there are a range of different benefits. Uh, there's actually a foundation called the Charlie Foundation that has looked extensively at how ketosis in many cases can reduce or eliminate seizures in children for instance. It's a very high-fat diet. Uh, there are also implications for anti-cancer effects and so on. But in my personal case, I, having grown up on eastern Long Island, I spend a lot of time there in the summers. It has one of the highest densities of what people call deer ticks, black-legged ticks, in the world. And I contracted Lyme disease, and I was I experienced very severe symptoms. It, wasn't, it was diagnosed at a very late stage because I didn't get the bullseye rash. I assumed I needed the bullseye rash, but turns out about 20% of the people who are afflicted do not display this dermatological symptom. So I waited until my speech was slurred. I was having trouble remembering friends' names. I took five or so minutes to get out of bed because my knees and joints were so swollen. Uh, I was operating at 10% capacity max for about nine months. I mean, I, I really felt like I had dementia and severe arthritis. It was, it was the scariest health experience of my life. I reached out to Dominic D'Agostino, who's a PhD, who's, who's in Tools of Titans. His chapter is probably the third longest chapter in the book for this reason. And he walked me through a process for getting into ketosis quickly and relatively easily and some of his tricks and once I hit using a device called the Precision Extra, X-T-R-A, it's from Abbott Labs, it's a finger prick that allows you to measure your concentration of ketones in the blood. Once I hit about 1.5 millimolars, which is not extremely deep ketosis, but it's definitely ketosis. I'm using body fat. I felt like before Tim. Uh, my brain was 10 times faster. I had none of the slurring. Uh, the swelling went down, almost everything autocorrected, which was very, very, very odd to me. And that was after antibiotics, which were necessary. I used doxycycline. Uh, and there's a lot of nonsense out there about Lyme disease, folks. So find a proper MD. Do not go for every alternative bit of nonsense that gets thrown at you. Uh, so after a proper course of antibiotics from an infectious disease specialist at Stanford, the, the ketogenic diet with supplemental ketones was the only thing that got me back to pre-TIM levels of, of mental and physical performance. And it was immediate. I mean, as soon as I hit 1.5 millimolars, boom, it was different TIM. 
from 10% to 100%. It was just unbelievable to me. And you see that not only in people with Lyme disease, but for instance, and these are anecdotal reports, but nonetheless, they're frequent enough and consistent enough that I think there has to be something to it. People with early onset Alzheimer's or Alzheimer's are, are frequently diagnosed partially using something called the clock test. So they draw a clock face with one to 12 around the clock face in the right places. And as Alzheimer's gets worse and worse, the shape devolves, the numbers start to disappear or uh, go off of the clock face to the point where then it just looks like chicken scratch. And you can look for, for instance, coconut oil, search coconut oil, Alzheimer's clock test, and you will see people who completely reverse their, their regression in three to four weeks of consuming, say, seven to eight tablespoons of coconut oil a day. What the hell is going on? That's weird, right? And well, coconut oil is, I want to say, around 60% generally medium chain triglycerides by MCTs, as they're called, MCT oil by weight. And MCTs are readily converted by the liver into ketones. So the 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 mystery just continues from there, but there seems to be a plausible mechanistic explanation for all of it. So that one just blew my mind. I mean, the combination of uh, Dominic D'Agostino's recommendations from a dietary and supplement standpoint, plus some medical recommendations from Dr. Peter Atia, who's also in Tools of Titans, plus gymnastic strength training, uh, and some really interesting exercises from coach Christopher Summer, former national team coach for men's gymnastics, completely just jump-started and, and revolutionized my body and health from uh, every level. And um, those did not take a long time. They were really, really rapid onset. So those are the, the first few that come to mind. Was there a habit that you took a long time, like you struggled with it, but you stuck at it because the payoff was, was substantial? Uh, or did you just focus on the quick, you know, the quick, big, easy wins? Well, I'll tell you, uh, here's my feeling about that. Um, if a habit is really hard and you keep dropping it, then you haven't structured your approach to the habit properly. So I, I'm not just looking for the easy wins. Gymnastic strength training is a hugely difficult <laughs> workout. It is right, in some right. cases extremely unpleasant. The payoff is fantastic, but it's it's a I think for many people would be a difficult habit to establish if you approach it in a haphazard way. But if you have timelines, if you have accountability to someone else, like a coach or training partner, if you have incentives, for instance, if you have a betting pool where five of your friends, you included, so five people each put in $100 and three months later, the person who you do before measurements for body fat percentage and the person who's changed their body fat or their body composition for the better, the most, three months later wins 500 bucks. That social pressure and heckling and so on is the type of incentive that you need to make a potentially difficult habit very, very easy. You need a why to, not just a how to. This is one of the biggest flaws in books like this is they don't give you any why to. They don't tell you how to implement it in any way. They just give you the information and off to the races you go and then 99 out of 100 people fail. Uh, so I, I really encourage people to focus on easy wins in the beginning or how you make a difficult habit easier. And this is supported by research by people like BJ Fogg out of Stanford, who's done a lot of work in his persuasion lab, where if you're going to floss or work out 
I mean, flossing is kind of a funny example, but let's say you want to floss, you want to learn to floss. Well, you should make it as easy as possible. You should make the, the threshold for successful flossing as low as possible. That might mean that you just floss your, your front two teeth every night for the first week. That's it. If you want to do extra teeth, that's extra credit. But the only success threshold is the front two teeth because the habit carving out a few minutes to make that part of your automatic routine taking something that is conscious and making it slowly subconscious so that it sticks, like tying your shoelaces or brushing your teeth, that is the most important element first, the adherence. Uh, if you want to go to the gym, all right, New Year's resolution, I want to I want to gain 15 pounds of muscle. I want to lose 15 pounds of fat, whatever it is. First, you should realize gaining muscle, that's a function of the gym, uh, primarily. Losing fat, that's 90% diet. And you can treat it accordingly. But let's just say you're focusing on the, the, the exercise component. What a lot of people do is right out of the gate, they're like, you know what? If I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it seriously. And I'm going to go to the gym for an hour a day, five days a week. Okay. If you have no pre-existing exercise habit or you've fallen off the wagon and you haven't had one in a few years, that will fail for 90 plus percent of the people who try it. No doubt, because it's it's too demanding in terms of time, and uh, it's too demanding physically. You'll most likely get injured. So what do you do? You make it stupidly easy. I mean, really, when I say make it stupidly easy, I mean stupidly laughably easy. Like, go to the gym two times a week for 10 minutes <laughs> and do that for a month. What you're really trying to chalk up is, say, five to 10 sessions and to make it a regular, repetitive scheduled activity. That's it. Uh, so for me, uh, I do focus on the low-hanging fruit, and there are plenty of them. But I also focus on making hard habits easy to comply with by setting them up in the way that I just described. I'm very methodical about how I set that up. If you don't have a punishment or a reward that is significant, you are not going to stick to your habit. <laughs> 99 times out of 100. It's not just enough to know that in 20 years you might have a decreased risk of cardiovascular event like a heart attack. It's that, that's not enough. You need more. If you want to lose some fat, okay, great. Give your most merciless friend some really unflattering photos of you standing there in your tidy whities And if you don't lose 10 pounds by the end of month two, those go on the internet. Trust me, like you will figure out how to lose 10 to 20 pounds. <laughs> you don't need more information. That's actually another line from Derek Sivers is uh, if more information were the answer, we'd all be billionaires with six pack abs. <laughs> you need more than information. You need incentives. Yeah, Tim, one thing I've, I've loved about your writing over the years, and you talk about it in your book is you're, you're pretty open about your struggle with, you know, getting in funks or depression. Uh, even you you've had some really dark moments in your life. Um, and I think for men in particular, that's a hard topic to talk about or to get help if they need to get help with depression. Um, we'll send people to your stories online where you've written about your funks and your depression, but like what's worked for you in managing the black dog of depression as Churchill called it? Um, and is it something you, you still have to constantly work on even today? Uh, I'll answer the last part first. Yes, absolutely. So I, I am prone to depressive periods. Every male in my family appears to experience the same pattern. Don't know if it's how much of it is genetic versus maybe exposure, but uh, this is this is something that I contend with. And like anything else, 
what I've, what I, the way I try to view it really is, well, first of, first and foremost, I try not to over dramatize it. So I, I think that it's, it's very easy to label yourself. And there are people, don't get me wrong, who, who need to have, proper medical intervention and many people fall into this category for something like manic depression but to loosely call myself say a manic depressive or something like that is a dangerous habit uh, so I, I view my predisposition to periodic depression as let's say if i was had a bum ankle and it's something that i learned to manage okay i broke my ankle I have to cope. Maybe I have to ski a little dif differently than other folks. Maybe I have to modify my workout routines so that I'm not doing squats where my knees go over the ankles. Okay, it's a manageable problem. Uh, and uh, could be anything else. Like, hey, Timbo, lost your hair. <laughs> you know, I have a lot less hair than I used to. It's like, all right, buy a hat. <laughs> like, your head's going to get cold when it looks like a, a hatchling bird head. So get a hat and you learn to cope with it and deal with it going to go out in the sun. Hey, pal, you're going to have to put some SPF 50 on la cabeza or you're going to get fried, you know, like, so you learn to contend with it. And depression, I've tried to view very similarly, at least in the last few years. And I've had some extremely dark periods. I mean, in a, uh, there's a chapter in the book about suicide specifically. I think it's the most important thing I've ever written and how I almost offed myself and the deconstruction of how it almost happened, how, why it didn't happen. And my, my thoughts on how to prevent that type of thing and how to cope. Uh, there, there are a few. I will say that arguably the most important elements are, one, regular scheduled exercise with other people. Everyone's trying to, everyone's trying to implement mind over body. I think body over mind is a very interesting alternative or at least complement. Uh, they are not separate. By exercising, you can increase relief of brain-drive neurotrophic factor, BDNF, all of these various things. They're integrally linked. So a regular exercise, ideally with other people, and that could take the form of a training partner, like we discussed with some type of, of betting component to ensure that that cohesion lasts more than a week. It could be training in jiu-jitsu. It could be tango or some form of dance. It could be acroyoga, which is my current obsession and <laughs> also explored. Uh, and uh, that would be number one, uh, exercise, some, some type of vigorous physical activity at least three times a week, uh, preferably in the morning as a form of, of state priming, uh, as Tony Robbins would call it. Uh, cold exposure, I've found exceptionally effective and uh, many people don't realize that this is nothing new, although it's been clinically validated or at least supported by some studies now. Van Gogh, when he cut off his ear and was, was sent to uh, an institution, part of his prescription was uh, ice baths twice a day or cold baths at the very least. So I will routinely do Russian baths or I have a standing fridge in my garage that is full of ice bags, about two weeks worth, and I will regularly do ice baths for five to 10 minutes at a time which Rick Rubin, by the way, also does, which Wim Hof, who's in the book, also does. Josh Waitzkin also does. And not necessarily for depression, but it is a, an incredible mood elevator. And as Rick would say, you know, after, after round five of hot, cold, hot, cold, nothing in the world bothers you. <laughs> Literally nothing in the world <laughs> bothers you. It's incredible. So I would say cold exposure is another. And uh, the last that I'll mention, there are many different 
there are many different coping mechanisms I use, and I, I don't want to claim that they work for everyone. But um, practicing gratitude, so developing routines and journaling, for instance, the five-minute journal, which I use in the morning and at night, list things that you are grateful for, appreciative of. It's very easy, I think, and uh, this is part of the reason you observe it so much in entrepreneurs, this type of what you might call manic depression, is that people who are, are very goal-focused tend to be future-focused. And I've heard it said before that depression is a focus on the past, or depression is being stuck in the past, anxiety is being stuck in the future. If you are constantly looking for the next thing, you are never happy with what you have. And if you're never happy with what you have, Nothing you ever get will make you happy, if that makes sense. So to counteract that as a therapeutic intervention, practicing gratitude is extremely, extremely critical, at least for me. So I've taken steps, whether it's using the five-minute journal or using something that an ex-girlfriend made for me called the Jar of Awesome, which is just a mason jar with the Jar of Awesome on the side. Believe it or not, and as cheesy as it sounds, you, you each day write on a piece of paper something awesome that happened, you fold it up and you put it in the jar so that when you are feeling dark, when you're feeling depressed, when you feel like you're a complete failure, nothing is right, you will never be right, nothing will ever be good, you can dig into this and review some of these pieces of paper. So those are offhand a few of the things that have helped. And I am not beyond pharmaceutical intervention or certainly dietary intervention, but uh, pharmaceutical intervention. I do not take any SSRIs myself or anti-anxiety medications per se, prescription medications, but uh, I have recently, and this is something everyone should talk to their doctor about, but started taking over-the-counter low-dose lithium. So lithium has a bad rap because as a monotherapy when applied to certain disorders is used at say 1,300 to 1,500 milligrams. I'm taking five milligrams of lithium orotate before I go to bed. And uh, there's an excellent article in the New York Times uh, called something like, maybe we all need just a little bit of lithium, uh, which is present in groundwater. And it's been observed that, <clears throat> and I'm, I think I'm getting this list right, but reported cases of suicide, homicide, manic depression, et cetera, are inversely correlated to groundwater levels of, guess what, lithium. So when you look at the, uh, the observational data, correlated to geographies, you can inversely correlate those. The more lithium, the lower all of those things are. So I'm taking an amount that is effectively getting me to the high end of that natural occurring spectrum, if that makes sense. And uh, the list goes on. I mean, there, 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 it's, it's yeah. not any one thing. It's the portfolio of techniques that helps to catch me before I fall too badly. And when you have a portfolio of techniques, if one, for whatever reason, falls by the wayside, perhaps you're traveling, you're not doing ice baths, if you're only depending on one, you have all your eggs in one basket. So I have at least a handful that I practice on a regular basis. And I'm probably leaving out one of the most important uh, morning meditation practice. And this is very critical. And you can start with something like Headspace. You could start with something like uh, the the guided meditation that Maria Popova listens to every morning, the 2010 <laughs> Smile Meditation by Tara Brock. Uh, or you could start with taking a course, a transcendental meditation course, which is what Arnold Schwarzenegger did uh, for a year, and or at least what sparked a year of consistent meditation. And the benefit of the course, I'm not going to hard sell TM because I don't think it's for everybody, but 
the value of a course of any type is that you have the incentives, you have the social pressure and expectations and accountability that you do not have necessarily if you're doing it on your own. But I, I have found some apps like Headspace or Calm to be a very effective place for people to start. I do think guided meditation is, is a very low hurdle for most people and everyone can squeeze in 10 minutes. If you have to wake up 10 minutes earlier to do it, then sacrifice 10 minutes of sleep to get it done. But that would be yet another piece of the puzzle. That's awesome. Well, fantastic. Tim, we've covered a lot of ground in a little over an hour. Yeah, we have. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, I guess people can find out more about the book at, uh, where can they find that? TimFerris.com? I would recommend uh, that, I don't think I've touched that one in a couple of years. I, I need to update it. So I would recommend people go to toolsoftitans.com. Toolsoftitans.com has some sample chapters. It has all sorts of information on the book. It is, uh, it's a fun book. I had so much fun with this. And just so people aren't intimidated, it's a 704 page book, but it's intended to be a choose your own adventure buffet of options. Dip in, dip out. If, if any reader reads a hundred pages, I'm happy that I consider it mission accomplished. So you do not have to read the whole thing. Think of it like a cookbook of sorts, <laughs> but, uh, tools of titans.com is where they can find out all about the book and it's available everywhere. And I am at T Ferris, F E R R I S S T F E R R I S S on Twitter and just Tim Ferris to ours, two S's on Facebook. Well, Tim Ferris, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. My guest today was Tim Ferriss. He's the host of The Tim Ferriss Show, and his new book is called Tools of Titans. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his book at toolsoftitans.com and also just uh, his happenings at fourhourworkweek.com. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash Ferris, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. Our show is edited by Creative Audio Lab here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If you have any audio editing needs or audio production needs, check them out at creativeaudiolab.com. As always, we appreciate your continued support. Reviews on iTunes or Stitcher helps us out a lot, so please continue to give those. As always, thank you again for your support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.